Hey, this is Conversations About Adoption, and it's me, your host, Jen. I just want to welcome you to the podcast in the year 2024. Um, My logic is kind of weird, but I am labeling my seasons based on the last digit of the year. So this is season four, because it's 2024. Um, They were very disorganized until I put them onto Spotify, so that's how I chose to organize them. The early ones are season one, um, and then they are lumped in all of 2002 is season two, all of 2003 is season three, and now we are at the beginning of season four. And my first guest is Brad. He is an adoptee that I've met through TikTok, not in person, of course, Um, just watching his videos, responding, sending him things, um, him sending me things, and he is a fellow Baby Scoop adoptee. And he is going to share his story and some of his life experiences. And uh, because my releases are a bit sporadic at times, uh, make sure that you're subscribed and you have a little check off for notifications marked so that you are notified whenever new episodes drop. I'm going to try, um, try to put out a new episode at least every other week. I think that's... A good place for me to start at the beginning of this year is planning on putting them out every other week and um, you know take breaks as I need them because we all have to take care of our mental health so also um, my closings have always been kind of awkward like I'm never quite sure how to end it and so I'm trying something new this year by asking my guests two questions at the end of the episode one is um, message that you have for adoptees and then the other one would be a message that you would like to send to adoptive parents or hopeful adoptive uh, people and so stick with us and you can participate uh, if you're listening on Spotify to the conversation yourself with the comment section and now on to the episode I'm talking to Brad, and he's an adoptee I came across on TikTok. And um, can you say your screen name? Because I have no idea how to pronounce sure. it. <laughs> yeah, it's Musifus Man- Mandelbrot or Musifus. You could say it either way. Okay, because um, I look at it, and my brain tries to pronounce it, and I was just like, whatever, and I move on. Oh, people, people call me Mew or Mew. It, it's uh, That was my, I don't know if you remember, that was my Second Life uh, screen name back when Second Life was a... Uh, program or an, uh, i was thinking it was a dungeons and dragons thing yeah close enough i mean almost as embarrassing but no nah, nah. <laughs> anyway and then you know it has some meaning so i've been no one's ever got musifus when you try to sign up for something like it's never a username that's been claimed so ah that's it good yeah what does so. it mean if you care to share i mean yeah so it's based on the greek letter mu or, or mu um and you know i think <laughs> As a aficionado of uh, chemicals, the mu opiate receptor was my favorite uh, one of the of the three. So, you know, when I like something, I really get into it. I'm not just going to be an opiate user. Um, I had to be passionate about the the, the details. So, anyway, uh, opiate mu and mu and and for a long time, musifus were all associated with using substances. Um, Interesting. 
And then the whole thing sort of grew um, and became my name in Second Life. And then I don't think I've actually attached it, but, you know, if that was the origin. <sighs> okay, so you're a, a baby scoop adoptee? I'm a baby scoop adoptee. Um, I was born in Yonkers, New York uh, in 1968 in June. Um, and I was adopted through an uh, agency called Spence Chapin. Do we name names on this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Name and there's, sellers, I don't care. <laughs> they're still in business today, uh, as far as I know. Um, and I was adopted by a couple uh, in a town called Far Hills, New Jersey. Um, Wait, did you say Fart Hills? No, but that would oh, be great. Sorry. Uh, no, but and kids do <laughs> call what it I that. Heard. Yeah. <laughs> and my son and I have this joke where I'd be like, you just said fart. And then he'll be like, you just said fart. And then, you know, anyway, but no, <laughs> maybe, maybe I did say fart hills. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. So far hills, New Jersey. Uh, and my parents were, my father was a young lawyer um, out of Morristown, which is a town about 20 minutes outside of Manhattan. Um, and my mother uh adoptive mother was a, a public health nurse before um she got married and then she was a a home uh you know a housewife well she wasn't a housewife because we owned a farm like we lived on a farm in new jersey so uh we i grew up on what's called they call them gentlemen's farms where like you um have like eight acres and because it's a farm you get some tax breaks on it you know and so we mm -hmm. had like we had like 20 sheep and a uh, bunch of animals. Anyway, yeah. So, yeah, it was a, it was a great uh, environment to grow up in. There was a lot of stuff to do uh, around the farm. And um, they were, he was, my, my, my adoptive father was very driven. Um, he came from working class. Both of my parents came from working class backgrounds. Um, but he was very... Um, invested in his you know pulling himself up by his bootstraps life story um yeah and so he and, and you know to be fair he did come from uh uh you know none of his parents or grandparents had gone to college i think his his uh parents were first generation from italy um like they came over whatever that is maybe not even first generation and um and I think that him becoming a lawyer, you know, he was very uh, proud of that. Anyway, the point is we we were sort of upper middle class, but the area that we lived in was definitely an upper class area of New Jersey. So um, growing up, my mother's best friend was this woman who is one of the is married to one of the heirs of a giant pharmaceutical company. And so I had this experience growing up of being at like the bottom end of a very wealthy sort of uh, set of people right and so it was very um me too yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean I, no, i'm serious i grew yeah. up in like a really fancy neighborhood yeah. and my parents well my dad grew up during the depression so like and he was a phd in chemistry and like while he made really good money we also knew we weren't like the rich rich people right yeah yeah exactly yeah. And, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't feel it so much. I, I, I think because we were in that environment so much as kids, it wasn't obvious to us. And then as, as I got older, 
the dynamic changed for reasons that will come up shortly. And then it, by that point, it didn't matter. So I will say that living in this group, I didn't feel more alienated. I mean, I always felt alienated from every group because I was an adoptee, but I didn't feel more alienated, you know, because I didn't, I wasn't there. Uh, right. Really. But that also might, I think that's just something I never really cared about. But, um, but yeah, so that was the environment um, that uh, I came into. Um, when I was two years old, my, um, we adopted my brother. Um, I found, so, I mean, I think I found this out recently that, you know, my mother had a number of miscarriages before she had me. Um, and I knew she also had a still, a stillbirth. Um, and I recently found out that she had more than I, that I had thought. So she had around, she had had between my brother and myself, she's ha had seven miscarriages. Wow. Uh, and they were all, yeah. And they were all very late. Um, from what uh, I actually reached out to my mother's friend, the, uh, who I mentioned to, to ask her some questions about it. Um, yeah. And so I found out that she had, you know, she had between my brother and me, she had had seven miscarriages and one and one stillbirth. Um, and it's wild because like, I don't, none of that was clearly obvious to me in those young ages that that was going on around me, but it yeah. just must have been so overwhelming. Um, That's traumatic for somebody, but you know, back then you didn't really talk about stuff, you know, mental health was not recognized because if you were having a mental health problem, then you needed to be put away, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And so you just like sucked it up. I think yeah. that's why like the older generation now they're like, oh, all you do is cry about everything. It's like, no, we try yeah. to acknowledge our feelings because you taught us to shove it down forever. Yeah, it's yeah. wild that you can't, you, can't, you can't change your ways, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, one thing I'll say for my my adoptive mother, like I, I so she I always call her like the most neurotypical person I ever met. And it's she was a single uh, only child um, and her father came they were working class but her father came over with his brother and they started a construction company in new york city back in the you know 40s and 50s mm -hmm. right so he was definitely he had a lot more money than you know was apparent by where he lived and, and what he did and by the time you know i came along and stuff or, i mean sorry i was talking about her but her life growing up they doted on her she had everything that she ever wanted and needed you know i don't think she and so, I mean, I know obviously just being a woman in that time is is difficult. And I think that she absolutely was sort of pressured by my father, adoptive father and stuff. But I think that the, what I say to myself is that these people that are super neurotypical, they didn't have much trauma when they were children. Right. Mm -hmm. So like the time that she made it, I think, to being an adult. Mm -hmm. And I, like the thing that always got to me is she was one of these women that we always had like a fully stocked liquor cabinet in our house for an occasional party yeah and and like she would have a drink maybe on a friday and then not have a drink for two weeks right, right. you know whatever reason That's she kind of what we had too yeah and this idea that like someone could exist i mean i get it now because that's the way i feel about it now but back then like this idea that you you could have alcohol and not just drink it until it was gone was amazing to me right or that you could have this like, relationship with the with the world that was so healthy, um, but clearly, you know, uh, in that time when they were trying to start a family, uh, she went through a lot, um, and I think that 
it's from what they, the stories I was told, my adoption was planned. Uh, my brother's adoption happened very quickly. Um, and he was adopted from someplace in Florida. I never learned the name of the agency, if it's still there. I don't think it is. And he struggled a lot more just coming in the gate. Um, you know, there's there are suspicions of some fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, and so of the two of us, I guess, I was the, you know, the, the great hope. Um, but, you know, my childhood was, was pretty good. I, I don't think that I started to manifest any uh, issues until uh, fourth grade, like 10 years old was, a, was around when uh, things started going off the rails. So until then, you know, my memories and my experiences um, were all relatively good. Um, I look back at them now and I realize that the kid in the pictures has a lot more stuff going on that he's not admitting, um, but Definitely. I don't think that I was really aware of it uh, or wasn't letting myself be aware of it. Yep. That's very relatable. Yeah. Yeah. I did a lot of that too. Were your adoptive parents older parents or were they like average age for? Um, I don't, I think they were average age. I think they, because. Which I know is a big window. But, yeah. you know, most people have their kids between their 20s and their 30s. Yeah, they were between 20s and 30s when they had us. I think they were probably on the older end of their peer group, but they were still like, okay. they weren't like the older people at the at the baseball game. Mine were significantly older. My dad was uh, born in 26. Yeah. So one thing I say about that as a as a father now, because uh, there's a my my partner and I have an age gap and I'm, you know, I'm in my 50s and I just had two uh, children and uh I feel like at least I'm doing it better this time because <laughs> of all the stuff I learned right in the last 20 years. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that helped out in your case or not, but uh, if he did a better job. Well, waiting. I didn't have my kiddo till I was three months shy of 40. Yeah. So I've had to deal with infertility myself. Um, I just chose to accept it because I read into what goes into coping with or not coping with, but trying to get pregnant and I was like I can see where that would lead me down some obsessive paths sure and so I was just like it is what it is you know yep. and I I just chose because I'm like this will drive me crazy if I allow it and that's what I was able to see I mean I was in my 30s when I was like you know concerned about it because my partner and i didn't get together to literally th i met him three months after i went through a reunion so that was a lot he's been on a lot of the ride with me and it's 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 been an adventure but um so it wasn't until then like several years in that it was like hmm i guess i'm not gonna get pregnant and just kind of it is what it is and then yeah. a doctor almost killed me and uh Sorry. i had to change my diet severely and then i surprise surprise got pregnant oh. so, weird how things happen it is weird how things happen yep keep happening yeah yeah so i have i'm almost 53 with a 13 year old so yeah yeah he's a good kid but um yeah so like it's definitely different like i definitely didn't have the energy that i would have liked to have had raising a mm -hmm. small kid when he was younger but i feel like i'm 
not as much of an idiot as I was in my 20s. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I feel like I really had no clue who I was mm-hmm. for yeah, I mean, until like the first time I saw my grandmother, I was like, oh, that's what I'm going to look like at 70. Yeah. And it was just like something clicked, you know, and then I went down the full path of like building ancestry family trees and and digging and putting it all and i like now i feel more grounded and then meeting my dad that explained a whole hell of a lot yeah (laughs) i'm a lot like my dad yeah and uh so yeah it's i'm like both of them but now i know where these things come from yep and like until i I was 30 i did i knew nothing yeah my, my from what i understand i'm a lot like my my biological father as well and um he was dead you know he passed away um mm-hmm. by the time i found him um but you know the interesting thing is that he was sort of a con man and a grifter and um i've always had this ability to get people to sort of do the things that i want them to do right without really trying too hard and i never really thought about much where it came from and when I see a pat, I mean, one of the reasons that I do security computing is that when I see a pattern, my brain automatically goes to the way that you can exploit that pattern, right? So, like, uh. the, the reason that I'm able to see these traffic, like this stuff, is because it's what my brain just naturally. I'm like, oh my god, I could take advantage of this so many different ways, right? And so I never knew where that came from. That's um, useful. Yeah, I mean, especially because it was detached from this sort of malicious intent, right? Like, you know, he was he was always hustling. You know, always had a couple, a bunch of schemes going. Um, And so, I feel like that, you know, whatever the genetic component of that ability to like get people, I call it getting people along for the ride, right? Like, and so, as an adult, I've used it in. You know, I've been a manager and a, a technology manager for twenty years now. And I, I'm able to build these teams where everyone wants to be on the team and like go to another company and they all want to go to the new company. So it served me well, um, those traits. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Anyway, back to where, back to Fart, Hill, Fart Hills. Um, <laughs> I am now, we'll be calling it Fart Hills forever. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I grew, we grew up there. Uh, it was pretty good until I'd say fourth grade um i went to this uh, so i was a obvious clearly a montessori uh baby and then or child and then um i went to a school for kindergarten the far far hills country day school local <laughs> private school and um and that started this pro this pattern of never of being asked to leave or or thrown out of every instant like every level of institutional knowledge that you could have so I left there after kindergarten. I went to this private school called the Peck School in Marstown, New Jersey. And that's where in fourth grade. So the wild thing is at Peck, they did this thing where all your documents and things that you amassed over the course of a year, you saved like all the papers and stuff. Yeah. And then at the end of the year, they bound them in these books. Right. And then it, during graduation every year, you get your book of all your stuff. And uh, when you look at the books on my wall, my house, it's like uh, first grade, second grade, third grade, they're like this. And you get to fourth grade and it's just like this little skinny pamphlet, right? Oh. So clearly something went wrong in, in fourth grade. And um, 
I was starting to act out a lot. Um, and I was resistant to doing work. Um, and I started hearing a lot about not meeting up to my potential. Um, and so that was the start of a good four or five years of being sent to specialists. So I went, you know, they, they basically gave me a bunch of tests, um, IQ tests and things like that. Did you get the, you're not applying yourself speech? Oh yeah. I got what I got, which I thought was really not this. I got, you're not only are you smart enough to do this work, but you're smarter than everyone here in this room, which I was like, well, I'm definitely not going to listen to any of the things that you say after that, because uh, this is not, you know, this isn't, this isn't it. So uh, I was, I was, they, they labeled it as I think initially it was oppositional defiant disorder. And my mother would not, adopted mother would not accept that diagnosis. Um, and so they dug on and on. At some point, the reason that I wasn't doing well in school was dyslexia, they decided, uh, even though my reading comprehension was like off the charts and, and math was not as strong, but whatever. It seemed like the reverse pattern of any dyslexia I ever had, had studied. But um, so then I got sent to this learning specialist who uh, up until fourth grade, I was pretty much ambidextrous. Um, I would write, but I would write like mirror writing with my left hand just for fun. I wouldn't. Huh. And so from, from like the, that side to that side. And I guess that was one of the things they were like, Oh, this is bad that he, you know, can write backwards. And so I got trained into right handedness at this learning specialist, which basically means you sit at a, a, chalkboard and trace a gigantic figure eight with your right hand just over and over and over again mm -hmm. um and a bunch of other stuff like that which looking back on it was sort of like i don't know it felt like a little bit like torture but who am i to say um and so that process ended at you know uh around eighth grade and i left that school went to another private school in new jersey um and that's where I found, um, I think that's where I really started smoking weed and and found drugs for real. And uh, then I got thrown out of that school, went to a boarding school in New Hampshire, where they thought that if you took all the kids who got thrown out of all the other schools and mm -hmm. put them in school together, it would be a really great idea. But <laughs> sounds like a disaster. I mean, it was really fun. I I can yeah, say that I, bet. I had a great time and I learned a lot. And I mean, but um, yeah, so I was right before the 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 advent of the troubled teen industry or right at the early days of it. I think I just missed it, fortunately. Um, You're lucky. Yeah. Those kids went through hell, go through hell. Um, but yep. Yeah. That was, at the very end, I had just turned 18 and I was a senior and they wanted to send me someplace. And I was able to refuse it because I was legally an adult. Um. And so, yeah, after uh, high school, I sort of wandered the earth uh, following the Grateful Dead and then Fish. Um, oh, you were a deadhead. I was. And, um, but I always had a job. I, I like, I would, not that it matters, but like, I, I was very, the thing I figured out early on is that working would earn me money. And, and I, I used to have summer jobs uh, working construction for my grandfather in the, in the city. And I would, you know, take off and go on tour and then I'd come back and work um, construction, you know, Teamster work or, or iron work. I did uh, both of those. And um, so I did that for a while. And then I ended up in uh, Maine 
uh, up here in Maine with um, my who, woman who became my first wife. Um, and uh, admittedly, I was a pretty crappy husband. Um, she wasn't great. I don't think she was great of a wife, but I, I don't want to like, I, I'm not going to say that, you know, I'll take my responsibility for my problems in that. And there certainly were many problems that I had uh, in that. It in was that. what it was. It was what it was. I mean, you know, I think that I will say that adoptees, um, we look for certain traits uh, that are very easy to mistake uh, or believe are genuine um, and then might not be so genuine uh, down the road. Anyway, um, I was married, uh, that first marriage, for 13 years uh, in 2007. My adoptive mother passed away uh, in her sleep from a heart attack. Wow. And so uh, that was fairly sudden. Like, I, you know, obviously yeah. wasn't expecting that. Um, and in the wake of that event, I so I didn't connect these at the time. But about a year later, I was working for a company. At that point, I was working uh, for AC Nielsen Business Media uh, in New York City, Um I was working out of Maine, but I was doing uh, technical development work and um, I was really bored. And so I took a job at a startup out in Portland, Oregon. So I moved moved the family from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon um, <laughs> and then blew up my marriage out there so that when they uh -huh. came to Maine, you know, it was done. So, yeah, so our marriage ended out. Uh, in in Oregon um and my ex-wife moved back here with my girls I had two daughters at the time uh they were in their early I think they were 11 and uh, 13 when uh, they moved back and so I started I, I left the startup that I worked at I mean that was the whole story but I ended up finding a job for an advertising company that had offices in Boston and Portland Oregon so I was able to go back and forth um, and see the girls when I was in in uh, Boston. And I did that for three-ish years or so um, until at some point, the both girls left uh, my ex-wife's house and home and wouldn't go back. And so uh, I was in Boston and I got a call one night that they were, they had left. Um, and so I moved up to Maine and took uh, took them, you know, got us a place. And so from when they were 13 and 15, I was there, sold. Um, well, it depended on me. Uh, and so I had them, yeah, so 13 and 15. And um, then I met my current partner uh, a few years after that or in that time. And... Um, and then I guess that was right around, right in that time too, was when I was starting to come out of the fog. So when we were in, in Oregon, uh, after, you know, I, the reason that, uh, the marriage blew up was this was infidelity, um, and my, on my part and, um, this drive to like connect with people had been something that I'd struggled with through my entire adulthood. Right. So I had not, um, I had not cheated on my ex, my ex-wife, you know, prior, um, but it was really only out of uh, last minute, 
decisions not to or or whatever and i and i always had had this sort of compulsive need to you know it manifest as just flirting all the time with everybody and or or whatever you know and um and because like i was you know relatively smart and not not terrible looking right like i was able to get away and i had this like ability to to sort of be manipulative kind of not manipulative but certainly people didn't like reject it right and and you know it was like i had this sort of radar that i was always trying to connect to people compulsively and um after my marriage uh you know ended and i was dating this woman out in um in oregon and I had met my partner now and I was like, what, like, what am I doing? Like, why is this like still happening? And, um, I, and then I had said to myself, this is just who you are. Like, this is just going to be your life. Like from now on, you're just going to always constantly be cycling through relationships and embrace it. You know, you know, that's just what's going to be happening. And, um, and then in like sort of a last ditch effort, I, I went to a therapist with my part with the, the woman in, in Oregon that I was dating. And um, that was the first time I heard anything about attachment, what what attachment styles are, what it means, you know, and, and anything about. I don't even think she framed it as maternal separation disorder or maternal separation at the time. But like as soon as she started talking about this idea that the way um, the things that happened before I could really even verbalize it, like it just fell into place. Right. Like I suddenly understood and the light bulb went off. Yeah. And it was, it was a huge light bulb. I, I like, I say, you know, I, I therapy is an incredibly important tool for us, but like so much fell away at that, in that, like, the 45 minutes between that comment and me like getting to the door of that woman I was dating's house. Like I knew in that time that I was no longer going to be dating this woman. Right. I knew like this, I, I these feelings of, of needing, <laughs> they're all like, Holy sh And that's a big, I think a big part of me and my like need for internal justice. Right. As soon as I realized internally that I'd basically been like rooked into this, belief right that i had to do this thing and it was based on something stupid you know <laughs> like the way i was treated as a, as a as an infant right like it so much of it fell away um and it was like in that moment i finally it, it was like you know I, I absolutely still had substance use issues going on right and so if you if i think about like my brain in terms of the things it was paying attention to at any given time right it was spinning on substance use and it was spinning on trying to connect with people and, and it was just always spinning and like when that first stuff fell away finally it was like all of a sudden I had like a little bit of brain space to think about something else you know and um so yeah that was a pretty big moment um and I did always feel badly that, you know, the, the relationship I was in at the time, uh, you know, that didn't end up working. And, um, but, uh, but yeah, that was the start of coming out of the fog uh, for me. That's, yeah. I was going to ask you, like, how do you feel 
being an adoptee has affected your like romantic relationships like not just the like I'm trying to think of how to word that best um like I mean, does it get in the way see if i get it right what's that like does it get in the way does does your oh yeah i mean it creates so i think initially what it meant was that i would try to become whoever the person in the other person in the relationship needed right and i think that's not specific to romantic relationships with adoptees. I think that's a, a mechanism that we build early on, obviously. We're filling and, a position. Oh, right. And so in that, and that's not sustainable, right? You're constantly uh, checking yourself and checking your behaviors. And obviously it comes out in other places. And I think that, you know, so that was, that was a big part of it. And then um, you don't talk about things like you get, I think as an adoptee, you are so used to holding your own counsel that it's very rare that you tell anyone that anything's wrong. I mean, a big problem that I had, I guess it was maybe an adoptee and part of the way that my my uh, mental health was handled as a child was that like I started bullshitting therapists in the fourth grade, right? So like by the time I was an adult and I'd be like, oh, I gotta go to the therapist, right? Like it was so ingrained in me to just bullshit a therapist or not take it seriously or, uh, and and they, and, then, and do it in a way that you never get held accountable for it, right? So like, what was the use of that? Right. And so, yeah, so it absolutely, like that, a big part, those are big ways that it affected relationships. Um. And then in my relationship with my with my first partner, you know, she would really take advantage of the fact that I was desperately afraid of being left. Like, you know, it, it, anything that was wrong, right? She was going to take the kids and leave, and that would end anything, right? The because, old abandonment issues, right? Because it was just uh, that's the worst thing that could ever happen, right? And so, um, so I I let I mean, you know, I, I to be fair. To myself, I, I tried to end the marriage multiple times and that's what would, you know, would happen when I tried to say, look, we can, you know, do this as, as co-parents or whatever. But, um, yeah, so, and, and then, you know, with my partner now, I think the biggest thing was that at some point, um, and I don't remember what it was, I mean, I, you know, I, she was here for the sort of rock bottom of my substance use uh, in 2016. Um, and she stayed through that. And I think at some point I realized that she wasn't, she was sticking around, right? No matter what. Um, and so I think that that more than anything helped me to address sort of the lingering uh, anti, anti patterns I was engaging in and stuff. Um, what do you consider your attachment style to be? Uh, anxious. Me too. <laughs> anxious anxious avoidance. I think it's disruptive. I, it, I don't know. But yeah, anxious primarily. Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely anxious avoidant. Like I, uh, yeah, big time. I, I, I had to think about it for a while. Like I remember we talked about these attachment styles in psychology and I was immediately like drawn. I'm like, yep, that's me. Because anytime I feel like I have something that I need to talk about, I really fucking struggle in my head. Like there's this internal monologue back and forth, rehearsing. What am I going to say? How am I going to say it? Is it really worth talking about? Should I do this? Should I leave it alone? And there's just like 
oh, I'm so tired of it. And here's the thing, right? Internal feedback loops are inherently unstable, right? We give ourselves terrible advice if we're left <laughs> to our own devices, right? You need external pruning of the information for yeah. it to be any value. Um, so that, I mean, and that's a part of what's different now, right? You know, about my, like, at some, I have very strong opinions about like anxiety and, and regret and um, the, now for me, I try to work like with the moment that I'm in and make decisions about what's going on and not think about the next day or the things that are coming and the things that are past and you know, it's fortunate that I have a terrible memory um, because I don't have to think about it too much. Right. But like, I, I think that that's part of the healing for me was like, I was spending so much time 15 minutes ago and 20 minutes from now in my head, yeah. that I was never right here. Yeah. You know? My friend and I, he's an adoptee, my, one of my best friends. And we joke about the whole overthinking things, like a conversation's over and we're thinking about it three hours later. Yeah. And like yeah. what we could have said instead or what we wished we had said or whatever. And it's just like, oh my God, I hate it. It's like mental gymnastics. And it's like, it's over. Like my best example of this was one time I said something to a lady who worked in the office where I was working. Like, and I had stopped in, I was working as a caregiver. So I would literally be there for like five minutes for whatever. And then I'm off to a client's house. Mm -hmm. And I said something to her. I don't even remember what it was. But like two hours later, I had to call in the office for something. And I'm like, hey, Jen, when I said that, I was, you know, whatever. And she's like, you're still thinking about that? And I was mm -hmm. like, right. Yeah. That's so funny. I Actually, there's a, I was, uh, this morning, I was looking at, um, there's a, a Zen story about these monks that, have you heard this monks and the woman at the river? Oh, so sure. there's two monks, they're walking along, right? And they've both taken a a vow of chastity or they're not supposed to talk to women okay. and they come across a woman sitting on uh, the edge of a river and she says oh, i gotta get across the river right but i can't cross and the one monk doesn't say anything because you know he's not allowed to talk to women and the other monk picks her up and carries her across the, the river and the two monks keep walking and, and about like an hour later where the one monk turns the other monk, she goes what was with that we're not supposed to talk to women like why did you carry this woman across the river and the other monk goes, well, I put that woman down like two hours ago. Why, why are you still carrying her around? So I yeah. think that's the thing, right? Like yeah. that that's part of what I think when I talk about when you, there's just so much spinning going on that it's very difficult for you to, to, to be a person, right? You know, you become the, the abstraction of all this stuff that's spinning and there's no core there to, to, mm -hmm. to, to reach, I think. So, yeah. I mean, and I know in my youth, like uh, it always, I've talked about this before. I think we're like, I was always not trying to talk about adoption. Um, cause as a baby scoop, I don't know if you're, was your adoption closed also? Yeah. Did they tell you anything at all about your bio parents? So, like when you were a kid and you asked, what were you told? I wasn't told. My mother knew that my, um the what she told me she knew was that my that all of them were college educated and that my grandparents were were PhDs and doctors so everything was great because they were smart um, was that true um so it, it was it was true that 
all of both of my parents were doc were uh college graduates and my um mother's uh father was a no sorry my father's father was a mater uh, a phd and a um a doctor obgym oh wow um and my mother's sorry my father's mother it was a a professor at a college um So, I mean, that was true, but none of the other stuff that they were told, I eventually, like, I was told that I was Italian um, and German were my, what I was told I was. And, um, yeah, I didn't, I wasn't given any specific or details about the scenario or whatever. Like, I always assumed it was uh, some hippies or something that couldn't, you know, whatever, you know, and um So then when my mother, no, when my grandmother died, my adoptive grandmother passed away, um, I did try to find my biological mother. And at the time, my my adoptive mother was still alive and she was super supportive of me trying to find That's good. my biological mother at the time. Now, I don't know, like she actually paid, uh, she helped me find, a, I found a private investigator and she paid that bill, but they didn't find anything. And so- I mean, I don't know how they, how they looked, but, um, and then I think people were taking advantage of people a lot for that little, Mm-hmm. Other patterns. Um, so what I did though, when my, when, when I was, oh, and I found out around that time, I found out that I had high blood pressure and high cholesterol. Um, and I was pretty fit. Uh, and so it was surprising. And I was like, well, what else is going on?
spent my life like picking that apart i was pretty damn accurate i was missing wales didn't think about that one mm-hmm. but i thought i was german and mostly like uk which is it's wales but like irish scottish german and all that and i i was right i was right i got my ancestry dna and i was like ha <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah but it was just I- from years of picking it apart well i didn't want to talk about adoption and heritage it was on my mind anyway yeah you know Ah, the fog. That's wild, though. I see. I don't. I still don't do. I don't take. I never took any interest in it. You know, and it, it started back when you did um, family trees in school, right? I was like, I'm not doing this. So, <laughs> this is not my family. And and then like you know, I felt I saw no point in it. And um, and then when I did do my DNA, I like I still not feeling any motivations like I you know I found out what I found out um mm-hmm. and it was interesting obviously the you know finding that I thought I was Italian and had this Italian heritage and I'm actually um Irish and German uh and not Italian at all but like so this is funny because I think it was a couple of days ago I, I was saying something about birth names and people changing their names right so I have this Italian name that I've always been very you know, fond of and proud of, and it, you know, literally is not connected to me in any way. Um, but I decided I'm taking it back anyway. I'm going to get a tattoo that has my, uh, my Italian uh, adopted name on it because I lived longer than anybody else. So I get to keep the name. Really? I, <laughs> I found out, um, well, Back when my adoptive grandmother was sick, she unloaded on my mom on her deathbed um, about all this stuff. And like, I knew the name never made sense. The last name that we have. And when I asked my grandmother, I'm like, where did that name come from? And she's like, oh, they changed it on Ellis Island. And I'm like, I think that's bullshit. Like, even as a kid, I was like, I smell bullshit. And um, are you going to talk Sasuke? Well, yeah. I share astrological sign and I don't know, whatever it is, birth, you know, the thing you have that's, imp- I don't know much about astrology, but I share and uh, the, I share with Kanye West, uh, both the uh, jet, we're both Gemini's and we both have the same rising and setting, whatever is, um, and my birth and my adopt my birth last name is also West. And so I wasn't going to take that any further uh i didn't want any further connections with kanye and um <laughs> i don't so, think anybody would know about the astrological whole, thing know, unless my, you tell him and my given birth name was the name of the kid in grade school that i was constantly told why can't you be more like why can't you be more like this kid and so no way is, I'm that is brad a name you were given as adopted brad name is, Brad was the name of the baby that died, the stillborn baby that I replaced, Joseph. Oh, is that what they named you? Mm-hmm. That, oh man, I hate when people do that. Yeah, was, was I have good. I my mom's my adoptive mom had a son that died at three years old. We had in my Mexican adoptive family we have hemophilia, yeah. <laughs> yay, and um we had three three of my cousins passed away. One was before I was even born and he was only three, had an accident on steps with a tricycle or something. And the next baby she had, she gave him the exact same name. And I'm yeah. like, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah, a lot of pressure. I mean, I didn't know it until I was an adult and uh, my grandmother told me 
Uh, and she, I don't think she was supposed to. Whoops. Yeah. Oops. Um, yeah. So, we liked the name and didn't get to use it. So we reused it. Right. Not like you imagined an entire life for that name already. Um, but whatever. It was, you know. But I yeah, do, I, I get it. Now um, it's they and they gave me they use my middle name. My first my Bradford is my middle name. Um, but that's yeah. what that's what they had me go by. So like I know it's not a lot, but like if you're different already, and then all of a sudden like the very first thing you have to do when you meet new people or go into a new school is explain the fact that you go by your middle name and not your first name, right? It's like lots of older guys do that. Yeah, great. Well, yeah, it's fine now, I guess. But anyway, <laughs> it, it was not hey, my it's whatever you identify as. You know what I mean? Well, actually, honestly, to be very honest, I have so much gratuity to or gratefulness to the um to the um uh what, what am I blanking on? To communities that go by given names, right? Because like or by preferred names, because until there was a movement for preferred names, yeah, I couldn't I couldn't be Brad at work. Like like when I worked at um Nielsen, there was no way to be anything but Joe. Joseph's my first name. No way yeah. to be anything but Joseph. And now when I went to Oracle, because they finally have preferred name, um, I'm able to put Brad in as my preferred name and get called. Yeah. By I work at a um, mental health crisis unit, also code word for detox. And when we have clients come in and they have a preferred name, you know, we put it on the thing in little AKA. So we try to remember to use it. We have to use their legal name on the paperwork, but we try to be respectful and and use the name they prefer to go by. Like we have one guy, his, the name he prefers to go by. I'm like, it's not even in your name. Like where did this come from? But okay. Okay you know so just to be respectful you know and 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 have them be comfortable and stuff like that so um was your substance use a part of your marriage imploding do you think or did it affect things or um so i mean obviously it affected things so and what i'll say is this my substance use was something that i uh, was able to keep from impacting like my day-to-day life. Um, Were you self-medicating? Yeah, I was self-medicating. And and actually what ended up happening and, and when things got, got bad was um, for a long time, because I had a chronic pain injury anyway, I was fine, right? Because as long as I had medication and I didn't escalate, um, didn't, you know, I, I wasn't taking like an absorbent amount of, of uh, opiates a day and uh, but then as the ability to get a consistent supply of pain medicine went away, um, I started, you know, I know how the internet works, right? And so uh, my ultimate downfall was not testing correctly, is the long and short of it, uh, or, the, or the thing that actually got me um, to the point of, of ending up in the hospital um, was not testing. Uh, so test your drugs, kids. And, um, but... Did you get no. fentanyl? Oh, I mean, they it, no. I got uh, I got um, um, the Zetalam. Uh, I got a a uh, Xanax analog. Mm. And I thought it was an opiate, so I did as much as I would have done of an opiate, and ended up. Oh uh, man! Four days of lost memory in a crashed car, and oh man, all kinds of things. So yeah, um, yeah. 
there's a uh, quite a few papers that I came across. You know, it's like one of the things I like to state is that adoptees are overrepresented in mental health and substance use. And like, I have never really, I was never, I, okay. I'm coming to the realization that I'm probably autistic. My son was diagnosed and reflecting on my childhood. It's like, Oh, <laughs> it makes that makes sense. It, it checks, you know, like there's mm. been all these things like, and, um, and so like, I was extremely awkward in school. I was bullied like every day, every day, all day, pretty much from the very first day of kindergarten. Yeah. And it just never stopped. And so I was never popular and I never fell in. I'm really sorry that happened, by the way, that must've been miserable. It, it sucked. It really did. Um, but, you know, and I'm, I mean, anything that they could figure out about me to use, adoption was one of them. Hmm. You know, the whole you weren't wanted or it's no wonder your mother got rid of you and that kind of bullshit. And, you know, guys asking me out in the hallway and then they're going psycho and running off, you know, and that kind of shit. And yeah. I mean, they literally anything. And I always felt like I had a bullseye on my back and like getting out of high school well <laughs> okay so i got held back in kindergarten for reasons of which i don't i never understood my parents just said we didn't think you were ready yet mm -hmm. and then my senior year my adoptive dad who i was really close with was dying of cancer and so basically i gave zero shits i missed like 42 days of school because i didn't trust my adoptive mom to relay information to me so mm -hmm. I insisted on going to the doctor's appointments with them to hear it for myself because mm -hmm. um, she couldn't get it out. She would just fall apart. And I understand that. But like I wanted to know what was going on. And so I got held back in 12th grade. I had to stay for another year to finish up some stuff. And that's the year <laughs> that um, my brother was at my high school. Mm. and he bullied me and i had no idea it was my brother wow yeah that was fun and um so like i, I don't know i lost my point because i started rambling uh talking about substance use i, I was oh, thinking yeah, substance use. So I never, yeah i never fell in with that kind of crowd like i was friends with the burnouts you know with gen x we had that burnout mm. i was friends with them but like if anybody was doing anything nobody offered me anything and like i feel like <laughs> The if, classic, I never did drugs because nobody offered me any. I'm serious because, and also I grew up in a very Republican household during the just say no. And some of the stuff I was like, honestly terrified of because. Yes, yeah, so you believed what you're told. I, I, I rejected anything that anyone told me. And so. That's uh, how my kid is, by the way. Yeah. He is on the spectrum and he is high IQ and mm -hmm. he's. He's very manipulative and he could be like a con artist. I used to joke. I'm like, he's either going to save the world or he's going to be in prison because he's going to be a criminal yeah. criminal mastermind. Like they, those are traits that go together with the giftedness. <laughs> you said Montessori that you were a Montessori kid. My, my kid could have been, we just didn't get him into Montessori, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, no, I started. So my first experience, I've I've done a TikTok about this with um, drugs. Was I found my father? My father has my adoptive father had epilepsy, mm. which is in interestingly enough, I had have epilepsy as well. 
Um, but um, I found his phenobarbital when I was a kid, maybe six, five, six, Yeah. something like that and took one. And, um, and then like, that was my first experience just feeling different. And then That's so young. maybe, you no, know, I think it was probably eight. Cause by the time, by the time things started falling apart in 10, I was occasionally like grabbing one. Um, and then, Wow. and so it was probably eight. Cause it was like two years of like, maybe occasionally taking one. And then I played hockey. And when I was 12, I think I, I hurt my back pretty bad in a game. And they Oh, gave man. me, they gave me uh flexorol and I think, you know, I want to say it was like Roxycontin or whatever the old um Before Oxy. or before Oxycontin was, whatever it was. Uh Roxaset, I think it was or something. Um, and that was the first time that I ever sort of like, wait, this is what normal not feeling weird feels like, you know, like suddenly like I wasn't worrying about shit anymore. Um And so, yeah, I mean, by the time I got to boarding school, high school, like I, I would, you know, it was, uh, you know, people would sell me like their parents um, pills or whatever. Um, but it was never, uh, you know, I never, I never like escalated in, I never escalated ever really to the point where it was an uh, something that was out of control. Um, Right. And as an adult, you know, since I've, I did get to that point where something went wrong and I've decided, you know, now I'm doing Matt, um, which I think is amazing. Um, I take Suboxone a day and I don't think about it. Um, That's what you we know, do. We get people yeah, started on med management like that when I'm we're actually at work. ready to move to, um, there's an, there's one called, um, I can't remember the name, I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's a injection that's once a month. So I'm going to try it. Yeah, or something like there's two, there's a couple of different ones. That one's Sublicade is the one I'm thinking of. Oh, yeah, okay. Anyway, um, you know, in our in this country, we're very willing to give people uh, SSRIs or other you know medications to as long as like it seems like as long as they don't instantly make you feel okay or maybe make you feel like shit and like we're totally resistant to giving someone a, a an opiate a day if that's what their brain needs to to feel normal. So. The point is, is that, you know, if I, if I'm doing this once a day for the rest of my life, I'm okay with it. Um, because the brain space it gives me is just amazing. I really like how you talk about those experiments on TikTok with the rats and how they basically debunked Yeah. those original experiments. And then, you know, it's true. Rats, I've had rats. They're extremely social creatures Yeah. like people are. And it just makes sense that they're not going to self-administer if they have community. you know they don't need it they're 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 not in pain because they're not isolated and alone and there's something to be said for that you know community is really important and a support system and all that I think the thing for me that that is an example of, and that's one of the things that I, I do is that we, you know, there's all these examples throughout history where we took all of the available data and made absolutely the wrong uh, assumptions based on that data. Right. And, and, you know, the collective we, and we were so sure of it in those moments. Right. And I think for me, that's why I like to stick with, with uh, patterns because you, you find some, 
there are core irreducible patterns in the world and the way things that work. And when you're comfortable with those, it doesn't matter really like what else changes. Those patterns will always persist. Right. And so like in our case, in adoption, right. You can feel comfortable that no one's ever going to come in and give you that one final one that makes it that thing that makes it all okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Because as a pattern, it just doesn't, doesn't work. Right. And so I don't know for me, like, rather than something being true or false or like the, you know, with the, the coming back to like the rats and the assumptions that we make, like it, it, clearly you didn't have enough of the pattern to make the call that you made when you did that. Right. And if, I don't know, like if we can step back and really look at things that things just make sense and or don't make sense. But um, yeah, the ideas that people have around and, and it, you know, they're very boomer ideas, like you were saying before, to like the same people that are not talking about their mental health and are, you know, they, you know, essentially they told a story of, of their lives and not the truth of their actual lives to people, yeah. each other like, and themselves probably, right? And to us. Yeah. yeah. Like my dad was silent generation. So like I had to hear about what it was like growing up during the depression with mm. a single mom. My, my grandmother was raising three boys by herself in pittsburgh during the depression it's like basically you know what do you have to complain about we had nothing you know and like that really shuts you up fast as a kid and you can't really relate because i make that mistake with my kid and i'm like you know my mom would have smacked me across the face if i spoke to her like that but i haven't yeah. done that to him and he just has no idea what that's even like. yeah He's like okay i don't care <laughs> that's yeah. I know I have that with my son. He's very much like I was uh, realizing. And I realize it more and more, right? That like, you can't give him information about something that's like, if there's a party coming up, you can't tell him a week ahead of time or he just thinks about the party the whole time and, and obsesses about it. Uh, yeah, my kid's on the spectrum and you can't. <laughs> and so, can't. Yeah, he gets so disappointed if something doesn't work out. It's like, yeah. you know, when he was little, I had to learn, don't tell him that this might right. happen. That's what I, that's what we do. And now I'm realizing that that's what happened to me, right? Like they wouldn't tell me. And so that's why my experience of events as a kid was that like one day we'd wake up and go on vacation. And I always was like, how is it that we're just going on vacation? Well, it's because no one told me we were going on vacation because if they told me, they'd learn originally, like if they told me that I'd just lose it. So they, that's why my experience of those things as it, like birthdays and parties and events were always just like, oh, there's a party we're going to tonight. And uh, so we do that. with, And we talk about like how, you know, when a lot of the behaviors that he shows us were corrected in me by either violence or threats of violence. Right. And mm -hmm. and so um, we can't do that. Right. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, I had. Children. I didn't um, have. I had threats of violence, not much violence, but yeah. it was always that quit your crying or I'll give you something to cry about comment. That yeah. was not real helpful. And with me, it was more like you weren't allowed to go outside and play. Um, I didn't get good grades in school because of the bullying. I was in like so much psychological torture all the time that like school was almost impossible to even get done. And so I had threats of like, I, I didn't have my, dry, my driver's license until my dad was sick because my mom needed somebody else to drive to go to the grocery store because she had to stay home with him. Yeah. Like they held off on like and all that kind of stuff, you know, punishments that didn't help me do better. That just made me feel like shit about myself. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, no, I had, I was spanked. And then there was a, a moment um, shortly after everything started happening where I said that I wasn't going to let them spank me anymore. And so um, I would just leave the house or whatever if they were, if that was going to happen. And then, um, but yeah, with Hamilton though, it's interesting. I got, so uh, a couple weeks ago, again. <laughs> yeah, so no, a couple of weeks ago, actually, an adoptive parent reached out to me um, on TikTok and was, you know, asking, uh, they have a child they're worried about. And I was super happy that they did reach out. And um, and so uh, I was talking to Brenda, you know, Brenda? Is it Brenda? Yeah. yeah. Um, and she recommended a book, um, uh, which I don't have, but uh, it's downstairs. Uh, and I, th I thought it sounded so great that I got it myself. It's like, kids with big feelings or, or or some some such thing yeah that was just published by an adoptee i believe yeah or, or some yeah so anyway she mentioned that and i got it and i've been reading it and it's like first of all fascinating second of all duh uh and then third of all like <laughs> how the hell am i supposed to do this uh because it seems equally like basic and and impossible but so there's this concept in it where your child is either in connection mode or protection mode and so I find myself, you know, I, of course, I only have read half the book, so I'm making lots of big assumptions based on very little information, but I'm constantly watching him now and I'm like, okay, is he in connecting mode or protecting mode? And like, how am I going to switch it around? You know, and like, if I hear him upstairs and I hear my partner starting to like get a little bit heated, I'm like running up the stairs and I'm like, wait a second, let me, you know, let me see if I can get him in connecting mode. And, you know, and so like, I've turned my child essentially into a Bluetooth, you know, I'm like, I get him in connect. <laughs> anyway. Oh, what is he right now? Uh, he's five. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, and, and, you know, he's five and, but, you know, he, like, it's very difficult for me who rejects rules to, to put rules on anybody else. You know, it's like, I would not uh, listen to this, so I'm not going to force him to uh, anyway. Right. That's how mine is. So, yeah, I get that so much. Yeah. I got to get that book. It's really interesting. Uh, I've, I've seen it around Facebook. I can't remember the author's name right now, but no. uh, it, it looks like it's a really interesting book. There's two parts. There's a part where there's like a running dialogue with an imaginary um, parent. Um, and I'm not enjoying, I haven't read, been reading that part, uh, but the information part on the other pages is good. So, so tell me about searching when, when you, uh, oh, yeah. when, what led you to look into that? So I it really was my my daughter. So I have two uh, daughters um, who are adults now and, and we're adults back at, when we started looking. So right like before the pandemic, my so it's actually kind of funny. My older daughter went through a, fa a phase, a period uh, where she was uh, becoming a Mormon. Um, and uh, she well, she was a ballet dancer here in Maine, the, the ba main ballet company is a is an lds family and mm. and after you know i think she found it a place that was very comforting to be at certainly with the turmoil in her life they were a family that was very kind to her um and so she at some point you know was was considering joining uh the church i don't know if she ever actually got to it before uh she changed her mind um what were we talking about? Oh, search. So the point was that in that they're very into their genealogy and obviously that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, yeah. so she did DNA on ancestry and she said, you know, I'm seeing some relatives. Uh, why don't you do it? And, and so they got me a kit for Christmas. Um, 
And so I did the kit and I uploaded it and I found my father's side of the family pretty much immediately. So there was a bunch wow. of them were there. He wasn't there, but uh, I, I led to him. Yeah, it led to him very quickly. Like I messaged someone and they're like, oh, you know, here's your dad. And um, wow. And, you know, he had passed away, but I connected with I don't have any um, direct like brothers or sister siblings um, on that side. And so uh, I you know, made Facebook introductions to cousins um, and that was sort of the end of that. And then, you know, the way that I am with uh, everything and ADHD and stuff, I didn't think about it again. Like I kept going into Ancestry maybe for a couple of weeks after that and then and out of sight, out of mind for a bit. Yeah, yeah. And then um, in the, during the pandemic, or right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I got like an email that said another record had been uploaded. And when I had at least gotten good enough that, it, and then when I looked at it, I knew it was a very close relative on my mother's side. And so what had happened was my mother's uh, cousin had uploaded um, her mother's uh, DNA when her mother was in hospice they had done it together as a thing right um, yeah and so what I was looking at was my mother's sister um, oh okay and so once I I reached out to the cousin who had uploaded it uh, and she knew pretty much immediately because this was a when my mother was young they had spent every summer together uh, except for the summer that I was born in where, you know, my mother showed up late that summer and told her that it had happened. So she knew, but she knew that like it hadn't been spread anywhere. So uh, she immediately knew who it was. And she, you know, she was like, I'm going to, you know, respect her privacy. I'm not going to tell you who she is, um, but, you know, you can ask me questions and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong uh, if you, you know, if you find out, if you figure it out. And um I mean, I was pretty good at that point at, at, tra at tracing things down. So I think I, I looked up uh, tax records in the town. You know, I connected a last name with tax records, and you know, people have to start. We have to adoptees have to start an adoptee PI. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I got pretty good, at, really it. good I, uh, at it. Yeah, yeah, I got pretty good at it. And um, yeah, the funny thing, the wild, some of the wild things is, is so she, you know, she was from Connecticut, um, and uh, a town near New Canaan. And that was where my best friend from boarding school lived. And so, and I have three half sisters uh, starting uh, three years younger than me to like, I don't know, 10 years younger than me. Uh, but I definitely, you know, hung out behind the same gas station um, wow. where like they hang out, they hung out, you know, and I live two states away or whatever, but, and I definitely drove down past their house, going to my friend's house. Um, but anyway... Yeah, so I found out who she was, um, and her cousin confirmed it. Um, and I sent an I sent an email uh, to an address I found. I was never, you know, it's so funny. And when I was on a, uh, on Twitter and talking to other adoptees about this, people go through all these machinations about should I reach out, should I not reach out. You know, I, I sent a letter. I sent an email before any of those questions entered. I think even entered my head. Right, so. And I and I was fortunate enough that I sent it to a bad address. So like I, I after I sent that letter, I found uh, one of my half sisters on Facebook and I sent her a message. Um, and so I ended up talking to my three half sisters first. Uh, and Did they, they know about me. you? 
No. Uh, well, one of them did. The oldest one knew. or No, it was the youngest one randomly knew. Huh. The one that got told all the, you know, she was the one that was always hanging around, I guess, and got the, the secrets. But, but she hadn't told any of the other ones. I don't know how they reconciled that. But um, they, so they talked to me and then I wrote another email once I had the right address that was different. And, um, and so that's how that happened. And then, you know, she connected. Um, I, I've told this story on TikTok too, that, you know, what I didn't know was that um, when her cousin told me who she was and my mother found out she cut off communications with my cousin. She, she called her up and, uh, you know, she was oh, yeah. super, super mad that she had connected us. And so it but was she real. Did, you did the connecting. Right. I, that, that's absolutely, you know, but she uploaded the, the stuff. That's what she was yeah. mad. About. And I'm like, are you serious? It's like DNA. Like that's not going to come out anyway. Right. So I, I didn't say anything. And this is like, I say stuff now. Right. And so I didn't say anything. <laughs> And, and it was eating me up. Like, I'm like, why did she do that? And, and you know, look, I knew that my uh, younger daughter was going to be invested in Like, she lost her grandmother in, in 2007, right? And this kid is, has wanted that connection. So I knew they were going to take it seriously. And I said up front, like, I don't care. Like, I don't want, I don't need you as a, a mother in my life. I had a mother. Like, I'm good. I'm done. Um. But if you're going to do this, like, you know, I want you to be legit. Like, I don't want to get my kids involved in something. Anyway, she, you know, she said she was so happy to have me that, you know, she'd regretted um, giving me up ever since. Um, and so, you know, on the surface, we had a good relationship. I think she was very, um, she's a very Republican woman. Um, mm -hmm. And she's... You know, to the point where they had a, a a blue line flag in their on their house or whatever. My birth dad's that way too. Yeah, and like, I didn't. I'm not. I, I'm not. My my daughter is a a very vocal, uh, you know, communist socialist. Um, you know, so she, well, she she won't hold her tongue. But like, I wasn't aggressive about any of my my opinions to them. I you know, I don't agree, but. I think a big part of what her concern was is how it looked, you know, she was in this wealthy community in Connecticut, you know, so the, the bastard son comes home, um, whatever. Right. Like, so, but she could have told me that anyway, my point was. And so uh, at some point I went down there and I was like, I made a special visit because, and also like, I wasn't the son that I'm sure she won't, like, I don't, I wasn't calling her every week. I wasn't like, sorry, like you kind of broke that part of me when you gave me away. Like, I don't really, I don't really care about people that I much. Would, like, yeah, I, I, I would go months with not yeah. calling my grandparents and stuff. But for me, it was more like, I'm not trying to insert myself into your life. Yeah. I'm here. I will check on you. You're yeah. welcome to check on me, but I'm not trying to like yeah. stick myself into your life. Yeah. Anyway, well, I, I agree. But also, like, like, I also just don't like talking to people. And that's like, I mean, they, <laughs> if someone, you know, if they wanted to reach out, that's fine. But yeah, I knew that that was going on and she wasn't saying anything about it. And like, so now that's two things that are, are not being spoken about. And and that that's but like, that's something I don't do anymore. And here I am doing it again. And then so I went down there one weekend and I was just like, like, why aren't you talking 
to this person, you know? And I don't think, I think I was probably the first of her children to ever come to her and challenge her on something, some behavior that she was doing, right? Um, and, and she didn't, she never gave me an answer. Uh, and she said, that's, that, that I was the problem. And I, and then I uh, got some texts from my sisters, you know, they also seemingly were mad that I was vocal about my adoption, my bad adoption on social media. Uh, and I was very clear in response to all of that, that I, I don't personally hold her very responsible in the whole thing. And, you know, I, I, I'm very clear that I, I don't say bad things about her and, and the things that happened to her that resulted in her uh, relinquishing me. Like I, I know what the story was, but um, they didn't seem to care. So that was the end of that reunion. Um, wow. How many and- years in was it? I don't, think we, I don't think we made it a year, maybe two years. It was two years in because we the first year was mostly um, quarantine, and then, gotcha. uh, yeah, and and so I haven't talked to her. And like my partner was saying yesterday or the day before, I'm pretty sure that um, when she passes away, I'll hear from my sisters again. So you haven't heard from your sisters anymore either. No. Wow. They. I mean, I think they. They. I think they all play the game that she has designed for them to play in order to not have to work or um, do anything, right? They all sort of have um, social media visible lives uh, that are nice. And I mean, look, I'm sure, you know, one of, actually, they all have things that they do, but I think if you want to stay in her good graces, you don't rock the boat. Gotcha. Yeah. It was my grandmother. It was about like appearances. You know, she felt like she looked like a bad mother. She looked like because her daughter got pregnant at 16 and that was more of a worry for her. And like I've talked about it on the podcast, like, but she was the one who would sit and chain smoke and listen to the scanner and knew what everybody else's kids were getting in trouble for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and like, I felt like I think you're the one who's worried about how things look and other people may not care as much as you do. And my cousin and I had a conversation about that. She is the daughter of my mom's first cousin. So she's my second cousin. And she said, she feels like my grandmother don't get in trouble. I have 15. They're, I have a pair Did you of say you 15 cats. Uh, no, I have a pair of Siamese kittens. They're, okay. I was going to say 15 weeks old, but they're, they're about five months old, but they, they get into trouble um, as kittens do. Yeah. But um, she, oh, I lost it. She was um, trying to maintain some kind of, trying to look like the normal one, I guess. Yeah. Because I guess the relationships her other siblings were in were like, like a mess or whatever. I don't really know. This is just what I yep. inferred from what my cousin was saying. So like my grandmother was trying to look like the good one, the normal one, you know sure. what I mean? Yep. So I don't know. And and she worked at the high school where my sister was going to school. And um, last, not last summer now, but the summer of 22 July, I got to meet my aunts. Finally, my dad's sisters and a whole bunch of cousins. And my dad's, second youngest sister was actually my mom's best friend and uh she 
my mother did not tell her about me because I'm assuming my mother knew exactly who my dad was and was like, right. I, I can't like let it slip. Um, yeah. And my my aunt told me she literally had my mother cornered in the bathroom and was because she was defending her all the time. Because if you were in school and pregnant, you could get expelled in 70. And uh, she was like, are you actually, you know, do you actually have a fibroid tumor or are you pregnant and my mother put her hand on her stomach and she was like i'm telling you it's a tumor and it's going to be removed and my aunt was like i knew i felt a baby's head and i'm like that is just the craziest thing to me yeah. blew my mind the interconnectedness of it it's so different you know it's it's wild across the adoptee uh a group of people right the differences in stories and the differences in like the major components that can change things like you know the the pattern that you're in where it's like these people all sort of know each other and like know you know it's different than like you know in my case i don't know no one knew anybody right and so yeah. it was uh what you learn is that there was all this knowledge around the events that connected it even like all around you the whole time you were growing up that's wild to think about you know i was 20 miles away from both sides of my family yeah. where i was growing up and when i was in school they had all these little schools in each neighborhood and then they kind of like consolidated. And when they did that, we had to ride a bus to a different school for junior high. Yeah. And for those two years, I went right past the cemetery where my mother and my um, grandparents and great aunts and uncles are all buried. Yeah. I had wow. no idea. I was like, that is the guy. I was like, that's just crazy. Like all these realizations, like as I was, finding out information i was like my god they're so close and but yeah. i had no idea yeah it's wild it gives you it's like suddenly you're home right yeah i heard this one adoptee <laughs> she was living in another state had been adopted to another state and for some reason she was drawn to move to this particular state that was i think it was like tennessee mm -hmm. and then she finds out that like the cemetery where a lot of her ancestors are buried is three miles down the road no. And I'm like, that's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. So just real quick plug. I don't know if you're on Facebook, but I have a Facebook group for adoptees who found a grave. Because mm. I did. Yeah. I initially thought I found two graves. But um, yeah, because it is a very specific kind of disenfranchised grief mm. to try and like, I mean, it affects everybody differently. Some people are like, sure. whatever, I don't care. I've really struggled with my mom being gone for me. Hmm. <coughs> Whereas... I'm, I'm happy to check it out. I I have joined a couple of other groups on Facebook. I'm just this almost yeah. bookkeeping. I'm just terrible about using Facebook. Is my that's thing. all right. Um, but I'd be love to check it out. But yeah, that's interesting. And I haven't, you know, when I found out that my father had passed, when I found him, I did a lot. I mean, I was in therapy at the time, and I did a lot of thinking and talking about it. Um, and, you know, I think it probably, it, it, it's one of those things where it comes up more than I realize it does. Um, but that's sort of a, a you know, classic protection mechanism, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's a, that's a nice offer. Thank you. I'll take you up on yeah. that. I mean, I've known now for, my mother died in 1982. I mm -hmm. found in 2001. So I would have been 11 when she died. I had like I stood no chance of of meeting her. Yeah. Um, 
unless I ran into her at a store or something randomly, <laughs> you know, and didn't know it, no. uh, which could have happened. But so like I found in 2001 and even now, like every once in a while, it'll still just hit me. Yeah. And it's like, damn, like I didn't even get to hug her, you know, yeah. and it is it's like it's just one of those things. And there are people in there who found like their father's deceased and it's really affected them. You know, yeah, I'd love to see it because it probably will show me if I'm not, you know, that's one thing I found is so funny when I first joined Twitter, I thought I had all figured out like I was fully out of the fog and that I had everything figured out. And, you know, within the first two days, I'd been smacked in the face like three times by <laughs> that I hadn't realized that I, I wasn't thinking about. So I, I absolutely appreciate an opportunity yeah. to like, see other people doing that work because, um, you know, that's how you learn you miss something. Yeah, I feel like I'm just like on this constant journey of like self-discovery. Like I'm still piecing it together, yeah. you know, and I, I don't know. I don't know if it ever really, truly, if we ever finish, like I was telling my partner, I'm like, all right, I'm like in another, I don't know, seven or eight years, I will be alive for the same amount of time knowing where I came from that I spent not knowing where I came from. Mm hmm. And like maybe something magical will happen. And I don't know. No. Yeah, that's what I said to someone the other day. Like it's like I feel like I started this life ten years ago, twelve years ago. Yeah, exactly. Because you're in survival mode when you're when you have no fucking information about yourself. Like Betty Jean Lifton talks about genetic bewilderment. Mm -hmm. You know, when we don't have that genetic mirroring, and like we don't even realize that that's what's missing yeah. until we realize it. Yeah. And in the interim, you're like, your mannerisms aren't like matching the people around you and, and all those kind of things. And, and um, like, I, I was really frustrated when I was taking like psychology classes and stuff because adoption is not addressed hardly at all. No. And, you know, the only thing that really comes up in every textbook, I'd flip to the back and I would see what is brought up about adoption. And then I would go and read. And it was always twin studies, the bogus twin studies that the information is locked away for 99 years. Yeah. And then um, nature versus nurture. Yeah. And that that's that's all Look, it's the same time that the old rat studies came out. There absolutely is flawed, right? Like, I mean, this yeah, is and then, like our studies are from the 40s and the 50s, basically, they're making these assumptions on. Right. And, and and that's the other thing, too, is any research that's done on adoption and like the quality of the outcome of adoption and stuff. Who are they asking? Yeah, the parents. Who wants to know? Yeah, exactly. Um, a couple years ago, like when I first started at, at my university, we had this class about advocacy and she was teaching us about how look up bills that are in mm. place and proposed bills and all that kind of stuff. And there was one that was um, to conduct research into the outcomes of adoptions. Mm -hmm. Who are they asking? Parents. Like you're asking the wrong fucking people. How about the people that actually are living adoption? Asking the warden how things are at the prison, right? Exactly. Like, no, you're asking the wrong people. And it's like, you know, talking to the wall behind me, you know, they, they don't, they don't That's, really care. 
That's, about a, I mean, that's the part that makes me speak out about it, to be honest, beyond like, you know, I think everyone should have an opportunity to, to know themselves and to heal their trauma as much as they can. But I, I just get so infuriated by this, this, the disconnect, the, the reshuffling of humans, the, the fact yes. that we're just transferring children from one, one price point to another, one, you know, one, it's not even like that rich people buy them from poor people. Everyone suffers, you know, like it's. When I realized when it dawned on me that mm. honest to God, my life was literally like a roll of dice. Mm -hmm. It was a literal fucking crapshoot because I could have gone to the family I went to. Mm -hmm. I could have gone to a family somewhere else. Like, and it's literally up to whoever was next in line. And like, not, yeah, that's, that's, that's not, that's like anti-fate, you know, anti-destiny, anti-nature. Yeah. My and mother it, used to tell me the story of when she got me and she'd say, she'd say, I was walking down the hall and I saw some people getting their babies and the babies were not cute. And I was worried that if you weren't cute, I was oh going to send God. you back. And, and she said, and so it was a good thing you're cute. And I Ew. think I'm cute. What the hell does that even mean? I was a cute, I, know. I was a cute baby, so she she took me. Like, good thing, good thing. I I, I can't. And that's the sort of stuff that you hear as a child and as an adult, and not even as an adult, as a teenager. And you hear it, and you don't think it's bad until you look at it suddenly, and you're like, who says that to their adopted child? Right? Yeah, right. She used to do this thing where I'd be in another room of the house, and I'd say, "Mom, mom," and she'd be like, "She died." Like, <gasps> and I'd be like. I mean, okay, like, I get it. You don't want me to yell your name from other parts of the house. And like, I didn't. That's horrible. She's a terrible mother. I mean, I I love, we eventually we reconciled our relationship, but she was not a good mother. And oh my um, God, she, she was not a good mother. Like, that's uh, just shitty. Yeah. And she just, it just wasn't thinking. There was no thought of it at all. I was, and you know, I was asking your friend the other day whether it ever occurred to her that like some of my struggles might have to do with adoption and she said no it never occurred to her because you your parents were smart and i was like oh okay great they were uh, like I, I have to say i i try to keep my adoption stuff separate from my facebook page my personal page <laughs> yeah. like it's really funny because anytime i do share something about adoption on there it's yeah. like crickets yeah. from everybody except the other adoptees or birth mm -hmm. moms Oh yeah, Crickets. I know there's a couple of um, gay friends that, that I have from high school who have adopted babies who do not like when I say negative stuff on Facebook. Of course not. What am I supposed to do? You're homophobic, then, man. Yeah, exactly. And I hate that, and it's like, no, I don't care if you're gay or straight. Nobody should be adopting. Hmm. Like you're driving the market. Like, yeah. do they not understand the basics of business and like? You know, they don't. I mean, they don't. Everybody and... thinks that there are everybody thinks that there are thousands of babies every day that are being abandoned because people don't want them. That's right, exactly. Actually, what they think. And then, but then, uh, when the Pear Tree app first came out, which is really funny because they approached me to being on my podcast, and I was like, <laughs> I should have done it. I should have had them on, and I should have really. But anyway, um, that was I like like I got triggered by their email, and I was like, what? But you know what Pear Tree is, right? No, it's that it's app really. for matching adoptive parents with. Oh, uh, I'm not happy that you told me about that. Expected mothers, <laughs> just to be on it as an adoptive parent for like three months, I believe they have to pay twenty eight hundred dollars. 
And then the first numbers that I saw, there were like 500 pregnant women on there that were potentially thinking about adoption and like 1,500 helpful adopters. And that's just one little tiny sample, you know, to show like with the demand there, you know, it's, it's just crazy. So we're starting to wind down. I know you're running out of time soon, but yeah, but I'm okay for a few minutes. Okay. Sorry, just looking up, um, up the app so I don't forget it later. Okay. I just wanted, I didn't know if somebody was trying to get your attention no, no, no. or something. Um, but I, I'm trying to think of doing something different for closing. So, um, instead of it being just like, okay, well, I'll, uh, you, yeah, <laughs> like, cause it always seems a little awkward. I yeah. So I forgot the questions, but I remember they're coming. So, let's, oh, let's no, see. that's okay. So, the one question was like something that you would want to say to other adoptees. Yeah. Um, I mean, God, there's so many things I want to say to adoptees. I mean, the, the reason that I'm talking now is, is, is my hope that adoptees who are still in the fog, um, and, and still don't know why their behaviors are what they are, um, can realize that there's something going on. I mean, for me, knowing what, what, go, what was going on, that first step was so, such a huge thing that like, if I can give that to anyone, um, that's that's the thing so i guess what i'd say is if if you are not uh, identifying with what i'm saying and if you don't believe that you are in the fog like stick around for a little bit or at least sit with your uncomfortable feelings for a bit because the thing i guess what i will say is that like all of us have a coming out of the fog story mm -hmm. uh, all of us have have gone through that uh no they're wrong and wait a minute and then wait a minute, and then yes, they're right, right? And so we know, I know how defensive it feels to hear it the first time, but like sit through it, right? And like, yeah. the truth is you either have a, a fog story or you're in the fog and there's not really any other. Uh, so that's what I would say, I think. To yeah, and I think part of the problem with the fog is you don't realize it. No. Like you don't like when I was a teenager, I was like, I'm going to adopt one day, <laughs> you know, and that's how the cycle continues. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then my other uh, closing thing was message to um, people who are either adoptive parents or thinking about adopting. Yeah. Don't do it. I mean, I don't know. It's as simple as that. I, I think that, you know, like we say all the time, you can, you can certainly provide uh, safe external care for a child without adoption. Now, obviously depending on where you are, it might be harder to convince a judge to do it than others even. But I mean, I know it's not an easy road, um, but it's the right road, uh, I think, to pursue guardianship. But I think that if you're pursuing having a, you know, getting someone to be a child in your home that's not yours, I don't think you can consider it as something where you are becoming a parent, right? At that point, you're signing up to help protect a child and protect their agency, Um to me, the most important thing is that the decisions you make on this child's behalf for the rest of their childhood, right, until you get them out into the world, have to be undoable, or at least something that they know you did on their behalf uh, and can make decisions about it, right? Like, I'm not expecting four-year-olds to have agency over all their decisions, but... Mm -hmm. They need to know at some point that 
these are the things I did for you. And this is how you reconcile them or whatever. So yeah, I'd say don't adopt. It's so hard for me to like get the fact that these people are seeking children to be their children out of my head. And that, and that, you know, I, I think that's part of the problem, but if, yeah. if you really want to help a child research how to help a child and then yeah. help a child, I mean, yeah, I just to add to that, I try to tell people that, you know, we need more foster parents out there advocating for guardianship because like the whole of society believes the propaganda machine that adoption is the answer. And there are so many judges out there that mm -hmm. to them, that's the only thing. Mm -hmm. And where they'll be like, well, if you don't adopt, we'll just give this child to somebody else who will. Right. And at that point, you're kind of cornered into it. A guardian until someone else comes along who wants to be the parent basically yeah and that's like you don't know where the kid's gonna go by that time they've been with you and you've formed a relationship and you want stability and they kind of back you into a corner where you have to adopt sure you know and that's and i guess if, if you're in the have to adopt space right then yeah. okay you do the best you can you make sure right. that you make sure that it's an adoption i guess in name only right or in paperwork only and you can you know you provide the child with everything that you could and and you act as a guardian as an adopter but like yeah. the thing that i i know the the reason that we're in the state we're in is that um we so here's my thing my soapbox it, it always is this is that if we really got to the point where we were looking at the individual needs of children adoption would never come up as a solution and but we can't get to that point where we're looking at the individual needs of individual children while there are so many children that are being, like, like you said, it's like when everyone has a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so there's all these, these, all these kids that are in the market because they're being pushed into the market and we're treating them like the kids that really need, I mean, everyone needs help once they're in the pool, but, but we're throwing these kids in the pool for the wrong reason and right. the artificial pool and then there's so many of them that we're like, well, we can't do individual things. We just have to apply this big Band-Aid or this big hammer to it. And, you know, like, I, you know, I, I did the math one time on the actual numbers. Like, there's a manageable number. It's a small number. There's a small number of adoptees, even like even now, like compared to the population, like we should be able to get our hands around it. The problem is no one wants to look at it. And, and so there's no one like... I always think that like if we could get adoptees, our, our group, our age, we could do some real statistical an, an analysis because we're a known group of people like, you know, there's X million or so, uh, however many of us, you know, there's less than a social network's worth of adoptees right in the United States right now. It's so, like we could do data analysis and, and get a voice, but it's so hard to get people to understand that there's even a problem. <laughs> right. And because of that, it can be really hard to get adoptees that are in the fog to even participate yep. in that research. Yep. And then it makes it harder to get accurate numbers. I thought about all this when I was in research class and stuff like that. I'm like, I have so many ideas of things I want to research, but getting that reach. Um, there was a project a couple of years ago somebody did where it was, there's a website. I think it's still up, but they did research like that where they put out all these different yeah, surveys. I remember. I think I did it too. It was a Google Sheets or something that I Yeah, I, yeah. I, and it's um there. but like and there's lots of projects like that, but there's there's bigger ones that need to be conducted. There needs to be more research on adoption from the adoptee perspective. 
And well, told, have I told you about my project, my movie project? No, I didn't so know I have a movie project. I have a movie project that I'm doing because I believe that adoption is represented uh, in movies and media at a rate that is much higher than the actual rate that it exists in the world. And that like literally every movie you see has some stupid adoption subplot to it. So yep. what I've done is I've collected um, a bunch of movie scripts from different movie script archives. And now I have an AI that I'm training to uh, read the script. They've all had the word adopt in them. He reads the script and tells me whether it's a reference to an actual human adoption. And then if it is a reference to an, a human adoption, determines whether it's the main plot point, a subplot point, or just a random not needed at all in the plot of the movie. And then that's just as far as I've gotten so far. So I'm writing that code to start doing that analysis, but I want to like start understanding how, because like a couple of weeks ago, like I go rent a movie. Oh, I wanted to watch the movie with my kids. And I put on the, like the Flintstones, you know, that one with, um, Rick Moranis and um oh yeah the movie the movie Flintstones and like I'm like oh Flintstones this is great and then when like in the first three minutes like they're like Barney's like hey Fred thanks a lot for putting in a good word for me on that adopting a baby thing I wanted to do and I'm like like why the heck did we need an adoption subplot for Barney's in three minutes of, it's just so stupid and then like a couple months before that we were watching that one about the, the crabs on the Jersey Shore and the same thing like it's just, you know, we're watching these crabs singing under the boardwalk. And then the first two minutes, the main character is like, yeah, well, it's just different because I'm adopted. I'm like, okay, great. We got another freaking, like, why? It's the propaganda machine. It's that's absolutely. So that's, that's my point, right? I think that it's like, th there's got to be some reason that we keep perpetuating these, like, this myth that it's altruistic, this myth that you should be grateful, this myth that, like, it's all. You think Georgia Tan. Yeah, oh, no, Tan. I swear to God. When my... It's her fault. My adoptive father passed away last December and I went to his apartment uh, and I ended up going through hospice with him after not talking to him for four years or five years. But when I went to his apartment, like the guy was like, oh, you're one of the sons he took in. Like I was wandering the street selling cigarettes before like I ended Little up. Little orphan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He took me in. That's exactly what happened. Anyway. My God. I digress from the questions, but. No, it's okay. It's okay. But it is the, the propaganda machine drives me crazy. Like every time I'm watching something like we watched Bojack when it came out the whole way through. And I was like, Jesus Christ, not only is there one adoption plots, but there's two adoption plots. And like, then some time later we started watching it again and we got to the second one where the cat's trying to adopt a baby. And I, I had to stop. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not, I'm like, I don't really want to watch any more of it right now. Cause it just, it was too triggering. You know, it was one thing with the, the younger girl thinking Bojack was her dad. Cause like that I could relate to, but then the whole, no, nah, you know, I just, and then friends kind of lost me when they had, um, yeah. at the end when Chandler and what's your name adopted those twins. And I'm like, why, 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 why does this have to be here? Like, this is not needed in the plot. It was already good yeah. without this bullshit. It's put in to make it seem like people are doing a good thing, too. It's the fun. It's just wild. Anyway, uh, so that's the saviorism. So that's my project that I have. I mean, that's I call it a project. I have a thousand projects, but that's one of them. Um, ADHD. Gotta love it. Yeah. Well, that, <laughs> this has been great. Yes. I want to thank you so much for sharing and for being vulnerable and, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it's been great and I will 
see you around TikTok. Yeah, I'll see you around TikTok. Okay, I see what's gone on since I've been here. Probably, <laughs> probably place is probably burning down, but um, we'll figure it out. yeah, we will. All right, awesome. Thanks so much, Jen. Thanks. Take care.